I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Derek Black comes back to the podcast. You'll remember that Black is the godson of David Duke. His father is the creator of the white nationalist website Stormfront. And Black is the subject of a book by The Post's Eli Saslow entitled Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. I invited Black back to put the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol by white pro-Trump supporters into greater perspective. He talks about the parallels to the 2017 Charlottesville march, but he issues this warning. I think that we should not get too cocky, actually, about the level of consequences that they're facing. Hear his explanation on this and how QAnon fits into the far-right dynamic with white nationalism right now. Derek Black, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me on, Jonathan. It's good to be here. So the events of January 6th, the insurrection of the U.S. Capitol, um, is still, I mean, what happened there is still sort of unsettling to me as an American, um, certainly as a Black American, seeing a just wave mob of white people storming the citadel of America of American democracy. Um, I would love for just as the first question, your perspective, your view of what happened on January 6th and why did it happen? Right. Uh, I think in some ways it, it was fairly predictable. And, and I think not not in a deeply introspective way or you need expertise. I think it was somewhat predictable that we could see this building over years uh, and in other ways quite quite unexpected to just basically how how successful it was. I think I and anyone really observing is aware of this undercurrent of rage and anger and conspiratorial thinking and sort of existing in another world. And, and I think something that we're maybe not as well aware of as a society is how far back this goes. It's not something that grew under just the Trump administration or was born because of the Trump administration. It is a culture of people that, depending on how you define it, is going to range from tens of thousands of true adherents to millions of people who are on the outskirts, who visit websites, who are part of communities that feed them quite elaborate views of the world that they hold uh, hold very true to their identities. And attacking the Capitol, like attacking any federal building is something that fits within the model of far-right extremism and the longer tail of much more normal people who are persuaded by those ideas. And, and I think Breaking into the Capitol is still shocking to me, and I think should be shocking to anyone that, that it was successful, but that people showed up with the intention of breaking into the Capitol and that there were definitely people within that crowd who wanted a much worse day than what we saw. Like, there were definitely people who wanted to assassinate politicians. There, we, we've seen the pipe bombs that were discovered afterwards. I think the fact that some of the individuals in that crowd who wanted it to be much worse were not able to succeed at that is, is something we we still have not fully come to grips with. I have I've gone on television and I've written columns where I just say flat out that the people, when I call them domestic terrorists, the people who stormed the Capitol, but I also blanketly call them 
you know, all of the white supremacists. Is that too broad a brush? I, I think I personally am still actually trying to parse it because there were definitely plenty of people in that crowd who were white supremacists. There were people in that crowd who were present at Charlottesville. You could see them live streaming from the House chamber. And if you go back through the old Charlottesville videos, you'll see a lot of the same faces. And I think that's something that we need to reckon with. I think there was a, a belief that I encountered every now and then between when the Charlottesville March happened in 2017 and now that that had been defeated or driven out of the public eye. And the reality was they it was much harder to organize after Charlottesville, but these people were still around. Uh, they were still present. They were still organizing. And to see them showing up at the Capitol is exactly what you should expect. Uh, after a few years, we're going to see them popping up again. Uh, and and that, that's something we should say. And those are people we can say they are part of the white nationalist movement. They have the ideology, they have the worldview of a social movement that goes back for decades and has a lot of imagery and common cause and a lot of the same ideas and figures over and over again. But there were also lots of people who were not adherents to white nationalism who were showing up there. And I think that's the part that we're still, we're still parsing. Like what was the role of white nationalist organizers in maybe key moments of breaking into the Capitol versus people who may or may not have made that action had there not been instigators there. Like, I think those are the things that it's gonna take months to really figure it out. And, and what I can say quite confidently is that it was not a white nationalist rally in the same way that Charlottesville was, but it was fused with white nationalism, anti-Semitism, and this ideology of, of white supremacy. So it, one of the things I've been grappling with, and we've talked about this before on, on the previous podcast, the, and you just mentioned it now, what we're going through is is nothing new and trump is he's not the he's he's a symptom not the disease and so was there something more that trump did that took people who weren't part of the far right who weren't like self-identified white nationalists but he was able to scratch something within them that um activated maybe long held never before spoken animus about other people or just flat out people who aren't white yeah i i think that was both that there was a, a back and forth between trump and a lot of the far right white supremacist organizers who benefited from him is that his organizing made it easier to rally people to the cause of white power because a lot of the things he said were exact mirrors of what people what people within white nationalism say and that makes it safer that that is a megaphone that makes it clear that there's mainstream support and it makes it easier to seek out organizations and, and really lean into something if you already believe it but you're not involved in in these organizations explicitly. Uh, and he, he didn't create that. I think it's probably more accurate to say that he identified the power of it and he leaned into it. And not everybody who supported him is a white nationalist uh, sympathizer even, obviously. But the way this works is that 
the ideas that they spread are very potent and do cater to a much, much larger group in America than people who are actually white nationalists. That's their whole agenda is to create talking points, to create messages that will then appeal to people who have more latent, I, I would almost say like common racist ideas and tell them to make that more extreme, more a part of their identity, more explicit and Trump identifying that behavior, that like political behavior, that organizing behavior, and and leaning into it and ramping it up, it, it helps their cause, and it expands it, and it grows it, and it's almost like a symbiosis. And just to be clear, because um, we talked about this the last time you were on, but when you say that not everyone who supports Donald Trump is a white nationalist, to be clear to the listener, you have a very specific definition of who a white nationalist is. So who is a white nationalist specifically? Right. I, I identify white nationalism very specifically as a social movement within the United States that has common figures, common imagery, uh, common stories. And when people come to it, there's a real learning curve to become a part of this movement of people who know each other, who are relatively small numbers, and and who dedicate their life to this community of people that is is uh, explicitly aiming to overthrow the social order that we live in, that wants global segregation, that believes that race is biological, that believes that all nations should be defined by race, and, and it's deeply anti-Semitic. And this is something different from the fact that white supremacist views and racist views are quite common in America. Uh, white nationalists are a movement that is trying to tap into those beliefs and get people to either vote or support or even just vocally repeat some of the messages of white nationalism. But those people they're trying to reach are not a part of that movement. And, and I know that's kind of a specific terminology, but I think it's it's important to differentiate people who have made it made it a part of their identity to build a movement versus people who have a racist belief and uh, are are really capable of being being mobilized by that. Um, one of the things after January 6th, the stories that were coming out about the people who were in that crowd of thousands storming the Capitol, going through the Capitol, breaking windows, stealing things, doing all sorts of other things. The number of law enforcement members of the military and then just what seemed to be quote unquote regular everyday uh people not in militias not white nationalists but doctors and lawyers and members of of legislative bodies who were who were there why do you th- why do you think that what happened on January 6th had such for like a better description, broad appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I almost quibble with the distinction there that I grew up really familiar with the white nationalist movement and its membership is broadly made up of people who are heads of their own small business, who run a car dealership, who are lawyers, who are doctors, who who have advanced degrees and that level of education and and income making you a, a middle class American is not does not insulate you from fully believing the ideology of white supremacy. That 
And I think we, we kind of fall into that saying that there, there are white nationalists and neo-Nazis, and then there are like normal Americans who are getting caught up in it. And, and while I, I do believe that that's a dynamic that makes sense, the white nationalist movement itself is fully made up of the people who we saw storming the Capitol. I would not be surprised as we get more into the backgrounds of people who are being outed and arrested now if you, we realize that they're both a surgeon and a longtime contributor to white nationalism. You know, after the, the insurrection, those two weeks up until Inauguration Day when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were safely inaugurated and took power in Washington, I was very, very concerned, afraid, as a lot of people were here in Washington as they watched the the Capitol turn into an armed um, encampment because of threats of plots and things against the inauguration, against Biden and Harris, um, and more attempts to overthrow the government. After January 6th, and given what you know, um, how concerned were you that January 6th could have been, that we could have seen a repeat on January 20th? I, I wasn't, my prediction was that we would not see a repeat largely because of the ramped up security and the attention. I, I think even the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th did not expect security to buckle like that. They didn't expect to be able to get inside the Capitol. Uh, I think we have lots of evidence that they wanted to make a show of attacking it, but I don't think that they expected to get so far. And then the reaction to it was so extreme that, that I think it would have been would have been surprising if they if they tried to organize big numbers after that. Uh, I think there's a ton of parallels between what happened on January 6th and the Charlottesville march, that if we didn't look at the aftermath of Charlottesville, then we missed that the organizations that were there, most of them buckled immediately after because of sustained legal pressure, because of financial pressure, and because of massive social attention uh, where society looked at what they were doing and it just made it impossible to organize and to raise money and to fundraise. And I, and I think January 6th is going to function similarly, that uh, there were a lot of common people between Charlottesville and January 6th, but the consequences I think will be somewhat similar. You saw law enforcement standing back and watching it happen. And then you saw the country as a whole sort of reel in reaction to it. So, so my expectation is it'll be a couple of years before we start getting massive rallies like that again, that similar to 2017, it'll take some time to, to reorganize and for the heat and the attention to die down. Wow. You said a lot there and that answered. I've got qu questions. The first one is, the, the the people who stormed the Capitol, you said they didn't expect the, you know, the the police to basically just move out of the way and and watch. Did they also did they not expect to get arrested? Did they not expect that there would be consequences, do you think, for, oh, I don't know, st <laughs> storming the U.S. Capitol? I mean, I cannot speak for them. And, right. and so in some ways I'm observing it like like all of us are. They're, they're, you're definitely seeing interviews with some leaders who stood outside of the Capitol and are never explicit that I they never went in. And so therefore they're trying to avoid being arrested now. So there's definitely people who thought this through who were present and were organizing the thing and did not go into the Capitol. And uh, the answer might be the, the heat of the moment and, and sort of the the privilege of thinking that 
nobody's going to stop you or have consequences. Uh, I, I, I think we can definitely say that it is blowing up in their face, though. And, and that was pretty clear from the moment it happened that there was a going to be consequences. And uh, I, I think that we should not get too cocky, actually, about the level of consequences that they're facing. By full expectation, I think what we should expect is that the movement that caused this rally and that caused the, the ideology that spread and facilitated people to come to DC and attack the Capitol, these ideas are going to exist. The organization behind it, the sort of decentralized organization is going to exist. And I think the consequences are going to mean that it's going to be a while before we see massive, massive rallies like that. I don't think it's going to happen next month. Uh, and, and I guess I could be wrong on that but that it won't go away, that it will just go underground for a little while, especially with the Biden administration coming in and taking the reins of federal law enforcement. It just makes it much harder to organize things like this, but that won't be true forever. And doesn't it make it harder now, maybe even more so, when the president of the United States isn't giving, isn't giving that movement aid and comfort and actually saying things and doing things that furthers their cause? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the one of the major roles that Trump played while in office was making uh, white nationalism and other forms of far-right extremism feel emboldened. Uh, and that's not a, a wild claim. We could see conferences in DC where people were seeking within a couple of weeks of Trump's inauguration. Charlottesville was explicitly organized because of Trump. Uh, and the attack on the Capitol was explicitly organized because of Trump. Even if he's just playing the role of cheerleader, that is something that facilitates and makes, makes it okay to come out and also tells people what they should be doing. Uh, not even discussing what are the, the cultural implications of having somebody be so uh, so against non-white immigration and so uh, so racist in their views about all people of color in the country. Like this cultural okay uh, is going to have a long cachet, but the fact that he is no longer in office means that just organizing something in his name is impossible. I think it's going to be much more disorganized. And I think it's going to be, we can look to the past, actually. I think uh, Ronald Reagan was a very different president, but there's some parallels to the level of excitement that uh, far-right groups had when he was elected. He he did speak in some ways to their causes. He, we, we shouldn't forget that he opened his campaign at the Neshoba County Fair in Mississippi, where two yeah. civil rights workers ha had been murdered. And that was widely seen as a nod to segregationists. And there was a lot of enthusiasm for him for a while. And as we get into the 90s under the Clinton administration, things go into much less explicit, much less open versions of this kind of organizing. We, we still saw mass violence, we still saw individual attacks, but the open rallying abated for a while. And, I, and that's what I expect under the Biden administration, that we shouldn't take that quiet or the fact that we're not going to be seeing it in front of the cameras all that all the time as a sign that it's gone. It's just a sign that we aren't going to be looking at it as much. Actually, what you just said there is probably the most hopeful thing uh, I have heard because, you know, being being a student of history and knowing that 
you know, what exploded on January 6th, is it what made that happen isn't new. It has been there as a part of America for, well, since the founding of the Republic. And the fact that it goes, it goes in waves and the fact that you say you believe that as a result of January 6th, they're now, you know, they're going to buckle because of all the attention, um, drying up of resources and going underground and being, um, you know, no longer organized or disorganized. If that's, if that is indeed the case, then that means we're going back to quote unquote normal in terms of, I don't have to worry uh, for a while that they're going to be storming the U.S. Capitol or the state Capitol. To my mind, and maybe I'm being naive, that the threat we saw on January 6th, which looked outsized and about to swamp us, has gone back to being a relatively manageable manageable thing in terms of the passions are out there. They've always been out there. Um, but because of all the attention and law enforcement being alert and society being alert that they, and not having a president fanning the flames that we stand a chance of holding them at bay. And I saw, I saw your face sort of flinch at one point. What if, what did I get wrong? What, where am I actually being naive, Derek? I, I, I mean, on, on, on some levels, I am optimistic in that way. And I take a, take a breath. And I think, I, I think that we should see fewer mass events like January 6th. I, on, on number one is though, I could be wrong. I don't want to be the person saying get complacent because what I do expect is underground organizing for these organizations maybe to become larger than they are now because they're gaining less attention over the next few years so that when they do come back when they are more public they're more more well facilitated than they currently are and so my fear is that we get complacent and we start ignoring them again which has been been the history and then also even if we're not getting these massive rallies even if we're not getting attacks on the capitol the possibility of individual mass violence attacks which have not stopped under the trump administration uh and have existed for decades i i i think very sadly we should be expecting that sort of thing to come out of even an underground version of this movement mm-hmm. that existing out of the public eye is not something that should make us feel comfortable i guess is what i'm saying Mm -hmm. do you think do you think we as a country can actually have the conversation that needs to be had about domestic terrorism and about domestic terror terrorism that is um being waged um by white supremacists or or far-right individuals who you know for the most part are are white and i remember in 2009 when dhs the department of homeland security put out a report about far-right domestic terrorism how that's a threat and returning members of the military were um you know folks who should be paid attention to in terms of recruitment the uproar uh here in washington and among conservatives was such that then secretary janet napolitano had to apologize and then had to withdraw the report 
And yet here we are, that report that was withdrawn is like everyone's talking about it, in, in, including me, because I wrote about it at the time. But had we paid attention to that report and had the conversation that needed to be had, maybe, and not having the election of Donald Trump, but anyway, maybe we we as a nation would have been um, better suited to address something like January 6th. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm optimistic on that, that the experience of Trump and the experience of the violence that's happened under Trump means that it is going to be much harder for the Biden administration to buckle in the same way that the Obama administration did when they're accused of, I don't know, what, what was the phrase, like targeting conservatives or something when they are identifying a very real threat that had existed for decades before them. It just seems much less believable to hear the Biden administration answer in the same way in 2021. And so that feels optimistic. Uh, I think most of my concerns are, are really longer term, that it seems we as a society have a real tendency that we've demonstrated many times over the last oh, decades to want to move on, not talk about white supremacy, whether we're talking about the movement for white power, which is a political and security threat, or whether we're talking about white supremacy as an institution, there is such a strong impulse to want to move on. And if that doesn't happen six months from now, there's going to be a very strong impulse for it to happen a year from now or two years from now and people to not want to keep talking about this. Uh, and I, I know I work with anti-racist activists and then keeping the, keeping the drum going is going to be a huge challenge without Trump uh, in the office. Uh, so seeing him out is the best thing. And also, I can already imagine the complacency that's going to be taking hold. Yeah, I yeah, I can see that. I can see that too. Donald Trump, if anything, the one good thing about him was that he focused the mind. He focused the mind on what the threat what the threat was and and remains. I'm wondering as I was listening to you you talk, it made me think about your about your parents and whether you've talked to them um recently or certainly since January 6th and what they're thinking about what happened uh, a, a little bit um not not in depth just uh, just a bit and i i think i could summarize it by whether it's surprising or not that i think they're not they're disappointed they they don't they don't view the current situation as optimistic for their cause and i, I don't really think anybody on that side is at this moment. Uh, I think the far right in in general is disappointed, is in disarray, is disorganized, is worried about consequences coming on them from from the Capitol and and from the incoming administration. And, and so I, I don't think any of them are rejoicing or seeing this as a moment of real triumph. They're 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 worried. They don't know what the future is going to hold. And uh, and and I, I don't know if they're necessarily thinking of this. But I can tell you what they're going to do is try to regroup. Uh, but this is definitely a low moment. So, Derek, help me understand something, because I'm wondering about QAnon. And right now, QAnon folks are all disillusioned, um, like the white nationalists that we were talking about. But QAnon is, to my mind, they're, they're bananas. I mean, they believe in this conspiracy theory about cannibals 
Democrats and child trafficking and all of this stuff. Where does QAnon fit in in white nationalism, or does it really? Yeah, I. I, I hesitate to give to get into full discussion of QAnon because I'm not an expert on what their beliefs are, how they've been organized, but I I think it's relevant to give an example of my experience in the white nationalist movement, which exists on a far right continuum that is often extremely conspiratorial, uh, and, and these groups are all distinct and they don't always like each other and they definitely don't always see each other as fellow travelers but they are as different from, there's a community that believes that there are humanoid lizards that live beneath the earth and telepathically control world leaders. And there, there was a bombing in Nashville not very long ago that was perpetrated by a person from that community. Uh, there are communities of people who believe in UFOs, believe that the government had, had captured a UFO and that technology is being developed from these UFOs. And there are white nationalists who exist in a milieu that includes all these groups, but don't tend to strike us as, as outrageously conspiratorial or, or detached from reality, because most of the issues that they're talking about are things that strike us as politics, their racism, their opposition to Hispanic immigration, their um, belief in uh, violence being perpetrated by people who are, who are not white. Like these things strike as like, that's racism. That's stuff that exists in society, but they're also just as conspiratorial and they believe these things for the same kind of conspiratorial reasons. We can see that in anti-Semitism, which is just as much a part of white nationalism as their, their racist beliefs are that Jewish people around the world are working together to produce immigration policies that bring uh, uh, people into America and make it a less white country and promote civil rights. And it's because they hate white people. And, and we can see that as being a conspiracy that's a bit detached from reality and seems a bit loopy. But their beliefs in general are, are facilitated by the same kind of conspiratorial thinking. And often people will come from one of the other communities. There'll be a ton of overlap. Uh, a UFO person will come to a white nationalist event or uh, a lizard person will come to a white nationalist event. And the reaction there is usually to say, okay, if you believe in white nationalism and anti-Semitism, that's fine. You can be here. You can talk about that, but don't talk about the thing we don't believe. We, we're not into that other thing you believe. And we think that's kooky and crazy. But when you're here, you can talk about our real thing. And I use white nationalism as the example, because those are the events that I was familiar with. I kind of assume the same thing happens in the other conspiracy groups. And I think QAnon fits in that way as a spectrum of people who hold different conspiratorial beliefs um, and yet have a lot of fellow travelers, have a lot of overlap and don't see each other as being the same thing or as being necessarily on the same side, except in the margins of, of their people who, who overlap. And, and I give that with a grain of salt because I, I am not a, a student of conspiracy theories broadly or of QAnon specifically, but that experience, I think, is at play here of, of how, how, this, how these worlds merge together. Derek, I want to end by asking you to elaborate on something you said on The Daily Show in 2018 um, when the book written by my colleague Eli Saslow about you and your story out of hatred, um, that 
was compelling. And I think it would be good to hear you um, flesh this out more. You said it's a lot harder to be an anti-racist than it is to be a white nationalist. Talk more about that. I I think it, it that was a surprising revelation that I stand by to this day that I got to a point over years in college where I felt like I had to condemn white nationalism and my involvement in it and that it was not enough to just be quiet. But then I tried for uh, almost three years to say that I've spoken enough. I don't need to be involved in this. I've done enough harm. Uh, the world will be fine and people are doing the work. And it was really only with the rise of the Trump campaign that I started speaking again, because I realized that that was naive to begin with. Uh, and, and that's the point when I, while trying to do the work of, of arguing against white supremacy, of arguing against racism, I realized that a white nationalist is trying to meet people where they are and tell them that if they hold a belief that they're being told is racist, that they don't have to feel bad, that they don't have to change, that they don't have to re-examine or, or be open to anything new, that if a person is at that point, a white nationalist is saying that you're not only entirely valid, but I respect you and I'm the only person in the world really at this point who respects you and that you can lean into that. Whereas if you're dealing with uh, some part of society that is white supremacist you're, you're, and you're telling people that they're involved in it and that they need to change and they need to view things differently, they hear that as an accusation. They hear that as you saying that they're somehow a bad person or that they are in, uh, holding people down, that they, they need to give up something. And that is a much taller order than telling them that everything's fine that they can feel proud, that they don't have to change anything about what they believe or how they act or how they relate to other people. Uh, and that is the fundamental challenge of anti-racism. It, it, it sometimes feels like the choice between telling somebody that everything's fine and telling them that they have to do a really hard thing now. And you can just imagine which one plays better. Derek Black, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast, for sharing your knowledge and your expertise, but also for making the point that we can't be complacent. Thanks very much again for coming back. Hey, everyone, it's Jonathan again. This is the last week to take advantage of a great offer from The Washington Post. Get unlimited access to everything we publish. And if you sign up this week, listeners can get two years of access for just $59. That's less than $1 a week for around-the-clock, around-the-world reporting from my colleagues at The Washington Post. To learn more and subscribe, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. That's WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Thanks. Thanks.